you know, we've been in this series called For the City. We kicked it off several weeks ago and kind of started with this big picture. It's looking at scripture with this idea that, hey, ever since the beginning, God's people were intended to be a blessing to the people around them. We walked through the Old Testament and saw this over and over again. It all culminated in this place uh, in Matthew chapter six, where Jesus says, hey, he looks at his followers and says, you are the light of the world. He like spoke this identity over us as his followers. And then, you know, the next week we went out and we tried to live into that by going to Kroger and stocking the shelves of the food pantry at the Martha O'Brien Center in the Napier neighborhood. And then last week, Dave got up and said, hey, part of us being for the city means that we don't just serve with our bodies and our time, but we use our mouths to proclaim the goodness of who Jesus is, that this is an important part of us being for the city. Um, you know, next week, I uh, just want to give you a little heads up on what's coming up next week. Next week, we're going to be kind of looking at, at, at something that is super relevant in our culture and in our time and in the, the age that we live in. We're going to be looking at this idea of, you know, the, how the way that we steward our sexuality is actually meant to be a blessing to our city. And, um, you know, our city's going to look at us and think that's crazy, you know, the culture around us will think that's crazy. And next week, we're going to have just a kind of a closer look at the way that how, how we steward God's gift of sexuality is actually a blessing to our city. And I tell you that up front, um, just because I know there's some of you that might have kids that normally sit with you in this space. And I just want to give you a heads up that man, we'll, we'll probably have some pretty mature conversation next week. And if that's not a conversation you want your kids to be in on, then um, you might want to you know, make, make different plans for them to be in class or whatever uh, next Sunday. So just want to give you a heads up. That's where we're heading next week. Um, today, we're going to look at something a little bit different. You know, we, we've been saying that this idea, man, what if we walked so closely with Jesus? What if we walked with him so closely that our very lives became a blessing to the people around us? And as we read through scripture, that seems to be the promise that Jesus is saying, hey, when you walk with me, you will be the light of the world, that your very lives will be a blessing to those around you. And yet, as we continue to walk through this series of us being for the city, one of the things that we're going to feel, that probably all of us are going to feel, is kind of this tension between Jesus' promise and the reality that we experience. I mean, I feel this all the time. I'm like, okay, Jesus, yeah, I hear that my life is supposed to be this blessing to people around me. But if I'm honest, most of the time, I kind of feel like I'm the one that's constantly in need of blessing, not able to give a blessing. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before, where you've got the promises of Jesus that just don't line up with your reality. We long to be a blessing, but it doesn't feel like my, my life is a source of any blessing to anyone else. What, what, what do we do with that tension, that gap? Because if, if we can't deal with that gap and that tension, then it's gonna be hard for us to keep walking through this series and this idea of us being for the city. And so we're gonna read this kind of weird story in Luke chapter nine that we don't really, you don't really read it publicly very much because it comes across kind of weird. Um, and I'm gonna go ahead and tell you up front, the story will feel like a challenge. In other words, it's gonna feel like Jesus is pushing against us in some ways, but I want us to see that in reality, Jesus is actually inviting us to something. And so we'll kind of unpack that as we read through the word. Let's go ahead and read uh, the text for this morning. Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 57. Um, 
It says, as they, now you've got to kind of understand context here. This is describing Jesus and his followers. So this would have been Jesus and his 12 disciples, but probably much more than that. A little bit later in chapter 10, he's going to send out at least 72 people. So this is Jesus and kind of this, this kind of gang, this throng of people that are anywhere from 90 to 100 people strong, going from village to village, walking along the road together. And it says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, that is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, hey, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And these are Jesus' words in Luke chapter nine. Now, you know, I, I think many of us, we read this text, and if you're anything like me, my first response is like, man, why is Jesus being such a jerk? <laughs> like, he just comes off kind of like a jerk in this story, doesn't he? It just seems like these are reasonable requests, and Jesus just replies with these like one like one liner comments to people where he doesn't really seem to speak to their heart. He doesn't seem to deal with what they're going through, and we can't make sense of it. And so we kind of just don't talk about it. I want to talk about it. What is Jesus doing here? I'll go and tell, you know show my hand a little bit. I don't think Jesus is being a jerk. But I think in order for us to understand what's happening here, we've gotta gotta understand what these conversations are actually about. You know, all three of these interactions revolve around one simple word. And it's a word that we see over and over and over and over again in the ministry of Jesus. It's this simple word, follow. Did you notice that? Like in every single interaction, the very first one, it's a guy who says, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. The second interaction is Jesus saying, hey, come follow me. Third interaction is a guy saying, Jesus, I will follow you. Follow, follow, follow. It's this word that keeps coming up. If you read uh, through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see this word used over and over again by Jesus. He calls Matthew to follow him. He calls the rich young ruler to follow him. He calls Philip to follow him. He calls Peter to follow him. He calls all 12 of the soon-to-be apostles to follow him, and many others he calls to follow him. And over and over again, Jesus will use the same exact word as he invites them, and it's the word follow. And in the original language, it was, this, it was used in what's called the present imperative tense. And this tense implies an ongoing command or invitation. Following. This word in and of itself, it kind of implies a future. It implies continuity. It implies something beyond the moment. You could say that what Jesus was actually saying is, hey, from now on in the rest of your life, follow me, be with me, mold yourself after me. This is what the invitation is. Now, we read this and it's a little bit hard because Uh, we've kind of been programmed to understand the word follow a little differently. And we're programmed in a variety of contexts. You know, our uh, pop culture has kind of programmed us to think about the word follow a little bit differently. You know, most of us, when we think of follow, we think of this thing that we do when we touch the screen of our phone to say, yeah, I want to receive updates from that person on Twitter. I kind of want to hear what's going on in their life. I want to hear what they've been reading, but I kind of want to reserve the right to kind of filter what I read, what they're reading. I don't, I don't want to read everything they read. I don't want to hear everything that's going on with them. Follow is like this momentary touch of a button where I still get to set the priorities over what I take in and what I don't. 
We've kind of been programmed. That's what follow means. It's this casual kind of one-time moment where we touch a screen. You know, I think there's another place, even in the church world, in our culture, we've kind of been programmed to think a little bit differently about following. You know, some of us make a decision to, to follow in a moment of emotional kind of ecstasy in a period of worship. I don't know if you've ever been there in a moment where you're like worshiping God and you're like, man, I know that God is here. He is near. Yes, Lord, I'll follow you. Yes, Lord, I'll go with you. I'll do whatever you want for me, Lord. I'm yours. And it's this moment of kind of this elated emotional response in the period of worship with those, which those moments are from God and they are good. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. You know, I can remember when I was in high school, we used to go to these youth rallies, you know, where we'd go and there'd be a lot of worship and speakers and it was kind of meant to get teenagers kind of geared up for life in the world. And I remember one year I went to uh, this one particular youth rally and on the way home, we're all on this bus together and the youth minister says, hey, hey, I want, I'm gonna give everybody a chance just to kind of share what God did in your heart while we were at this youth rally. And I never forget this one guy named Daniel, he stands up and, uh, and he goes to the front of the bus and he's super emotional. I'm not trying to make fun of him or make light of what God was doing in him. But in that moment of emotional being, feeling elated, he kind of says, hey, uh, I feel that God is just calling me to completely give up listening to secular music. No more secular music for me. I'm only going to listen to Christian music. I'm going to get rid of all my secular CDs. And I'm sitting in the back of the bus and I'm going, dude, I know which CDs that guy has. I kind of want them. <laughs> so <laughs> I was real mature. And so I remember going up to him and be like, hey, what are you gonna do with all your Pearl Jam CDs, dude? And he's like, he's like, you want them? I'm like, yeah, I want them. So he like gave them all to me. Like I reaped the benefit of his emotional high. And then like two weeks later, he comes up to me. He's like, dude, you still have those CDs? I kind of want to get them back. I'm not sure that was God speaking. I don't know if I want to keep doing this or not. You see, he, he moved in a moment of emotional, like elatedness. And yet he didn't have the reserve to keep going. He didn't understand there was something bigger besides an emotional moment that he was being invited into. You know, when we don't understand the bigness of follow, our emotions will flicker. They will. Your emotions will wane. They will go away. For Jesus, follow wasn't a decision to be made in, emotional, in, a, in a state of elated emotions. It was something for the future that you keep walking into. You know, I, I think another place we've kind of been programmed to think about following, even in the church culture, is that, that we're told like in this moment of deep conviction, we're saying, hey, follow Jesus is simply a simple moment of transaction where you say a simple prayer or you get into the water or whatever it was your tradition taught you. And in that moment, you exchange eternal condemnation to eternal life. Where it's this moment of transaction where I get my ticket punched so that I know that at the end of this life I'm good, but it's nothing more than a transactional agreement between me and Jesus because I did the right thing in this moment. I said the right prayer. I went through the right actions. And we think that's what it means to follow is just to have this moment of transaction. But you see, for Jesus, none of these things, the Twitter follow, the emotional follow, the conviction of a moment kind of follow, none of these are the picture that Jesus lays out right here. For him, follow always implied this continuous thing for the rest of your life where it's something that you continue to put yourself before him. In fact, if you start reading about the invitation of Jesus throughout the Gospels, you'll find there's only really two invitations that Jesus really gives people. I mean, you can go read, I may be wrong on this, but read through the Gospels and see if you find another thing. There's two invitations Jesus gives. His invitation is always, hey, come follow me or go share about the kingdom. Those are the two invitations. 
He says, come follow me, go share the kingdom. Come follow me, go share the kingdom. This is the invitation of Jesus. And so you see, when we read this story, I actually don't think that Jesus was being a jerk. I think he was being supremely kind. Because see, Jesus knows that this kind of following that he's inviting us into, that he was inviting these three guys into, this kind of following is going to cost And Jesus is going to address these costs and these concerns. You see, Jesus was not a jerk. The jerk move would have been for Jesus to pull a bait and switch. Like, hey, come on in, follow. It's going to be awesome. Life will be rosy. It's going to be great. I promise you, nothing will go wrong. You can't fail. No, Jesus is not a con artist. Jesus is honest. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, earlier in this chapter, Jesus says so plainly and clearly, he says, hey, listen, I want you to understand if you want to be my disciple. This is what that means. It means laying down your life, taking up your cross, and following me. He said, this is what it looks like. Jesus wasn't a jerk. Jesus wants people to know what they're getting themselves into when they say they want to follow him. The jerk thing would have been to do the opposite. And so we see these three guys come, and as they come, Jesus knows that there's going to be barriers to them being able to fully lean into this calling that he's given them. And so he wants to address these barriers. It's as if he's looking at these guys, he's looking at us, and he's going, hey, I know your heart, and I know that you want to follow me in this moment. But you need to know the truth about what that's going to entail. You need to know, because I love you, Otherwise, you will get discouraged and you will stop. You'll give up. He goes, you got to hear me. I'm going to tell you up front what this means. And so these three guys, we, we see these interactions. One thing you need to notice that we don't know what these guys did. So we don't know that Jesus was turning them away. It doesn't say. Uh, we also don't know kind of, kind of what the circumstance was. We're going to unpack some of that. But Jesus wasn't just saying, this isn't the rich young ruler where he, he kind of made a call and they couldn't do it and the dude went away. We don't know what these guys did with what Jesus says. Jesus is just being honest with them. And in the first story, he's kind of saying, listen, I know you are zealous and you want to follow me wherever I go, but there's this barrier you need to be aware of, this cost you need to be aware of. And he says, sometimes following me will require some discomfort. He said it really plainly to this guy. He said, hey, listen, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man talking about himself, he's like, I don't even have a pillow to put my head on. He says, you know, you're, you're going to leave right now and you're going to go back to your house and you're going to sleep on a bed. You're going to have a roof over your head. He said, but what you need to know about following me literally right here and now for Jesus in that time, he said, I'm going from village to village and there's going to be some nights where you lay down to sleep with the stars as your roof and a rock as your pillow. And you just need to understand that's the reality of it. Jesus wasn't being a jerk. He's just letting the guy know what he's signing up for. And this is what he does for us as well. He's just saying, hey, there's going to be some discomfort along the way. Sometimes I'm gonna invite you into stuff that is gonna feel uncomfortable. It's just the reality. Jesus is laying it out kindly so you know what you're stepping into. You know, the second guy, it's a little bit harder for us to understand. You know, he says, hey, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you. You know, he says, follow me. He says, okay, first let me go bury my dad. And Jesus says, hey, let the dead bury their own dead. And we're like, wait, what? <laughs> Here's the thing we need to know about this, okay? You will be hard-pressed to find any biblical scholar who believes that this man's dad was actually already dead. The reality was, if his dad had already, was already deceased, he would have already been actively engaged 
and kind of the, the ritual ceremonial cleansings of his body to prepare him for burial. You see, the Jewish people, uh, the, burial, the burial ceremony was deeply significant and really important. And so if this guy's dad had already deceased, he wouldn't have been walking along the road having a conversation with Jesus. Now he would have been at home actively preparing his father's dead body. Now most scholars think that in reality, what this guy was talking about when he said, let me bury my father, he's saying, hey, listen, Jesus, I, I know you're inviting me to follow you, but I've got some other obligations. You know, my dad, you know, I, 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 if I take care of my dad, it's like eventually I'll be able to bury my dad and I'm gonna get this inheritance. That what this guy was really implying was that there are some circumstances in my life that make it a little bit inconvenient right now, Jesus, for me to completely follow you. And what Jesus says to him, he gives him this play on words, and this will sound insensitive to us, but I think Jesus was just naming the truth for the guy. He says, hey, the play on words that he gives, he says, let the dead bury the dead. He says, listen, what he's saying is let the spiritually dead deal with those life circumstances that all of us will have to deal with. He's saying, let those who have not already stepped into life in the kingdom He's saying there are life circumstances that anyone can deal with, and you also will have to deal with those, but I want you to understand when you follow me, the very first priority is proclaiming the kingdom in any and all circumstances. He doesn't tell him not to go bury his father. He says, listen, you gotta understand that as you're doing that, your priority is declaring the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom, that in everything you do, even when it feels inconvenient, you are called to proclaim the kingdom because that is what I've been sent to do and that is what I'm inviting you to be a part of as well. He's just saying, hey, this is, this is a part of it. This is what it looks like to follow me. He's laying it out for him so that he knows what he'd be stepping into. You know, the third one that Jesus gets to is, Kind of, again, hard for us to understand. This guy, all he wants to do is go say bye to his family. And Jesus gives him this kind of line, hey, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. First, let us just know that we don't know what this guy did. Jesus didn't tell him not to go say bye to his family. We don't know if the guy chose to follow Jesus if he didn't. Jesus was giving him something in this statement. But this something is often hard for us to understand because Jesus was speaking a language into his culture. He was talking about the act of plowing a field with an ox. How many of you have ever plowed a field with an ox? Nobody really, I'm shocked. Like I thought for sure somebody. It's like, none of us have ever plowed a field with an ox. So it's hard for us to understand this story, this one-liner that Jesus gives us, but this guy would have understood it because almost all of them would have plowed a field with an ox. You see, when you plow a field with an ox, the way that it works is as if you're the plow person, you've got your hand on the plow and you have to fix your eyes on a point off in the distance to make sure that each row that you plow is straight and true. And the moment you take your eyes off of the, the goal in the distance, guess what the plow does? It begins to turn. A plowman never looked over his shoulder to see if his row was straight because guess what the row in front of him was gonna do? It was gonna get crooked, it was gonna turn. And what Jesus was saying to, the, to this guy, he said, hey, listen, as you walk with me, when, when, you, when you step into life in the kingdom, there are gonna be a lot of things that come to compete for your attention and your focus, even good things, even things like your family. Jesus wasn't saying family is bad. This verse has been misused. I know some of you may have grown up in families where uh, maybe your parents neglected you or gave themselves more over to the kingdom because they were just trying to, no, you're... 
It's like, listen, this was not saying family is bad. Jesus was saying, listen, there is one supreme thing when you step into the kingdom, and that is fixing your eyes on Jesus and making sure that that row is straight. And as you plow that straight row with your eyes on Jesus, the harvest that comes because of your plowing will be a blessing to everyone around you, including your family, including your children, including the city all around you. Fix your eyes on me, Jesus says. Because sometimes walking in the kingdom requires this singular focus upon Jesus and not letting our eyes be pulled to the right or to the left or over our shoulder to see what's behind us. So Jesus wasn't being a jerk. He was just saying, hey, listen, I want you to understand that when you step into following me, there's a singularity of focus that is required if you want to plow a straight row in the kingdom that yields a great harvest. You know, the reality is I think we often feel the tension We go, my life is meant to be a blessing, Jesus, but I don't feel that. You know, I think sometimes we feel that tension because nobody's taken the time to tell us that there are some real barriers, real barriers to stepping into following Jesus, that there are some real costs to following Jesus, that when you say you want to follow him, it will come with hindrances and roadblocks and costs And Jesus is just kind, and he says up front, hey, you need to know what you're stepping into. You know, just like there were barriers for these three guys back in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, there are many barriers that we face. There are many roadblocks that come before us that if we don't know about them up front, we get really confused. We say, I want to live for the city. I want my life to be a blessing. But man, I don't know, Jesus, why is that not happening? I think some of the, I'm not going to name every single barrier because there's like, I mean, there's so many that we can name, right? But I'll name a couple for us. You know, I think one of the barriers that we face is just kind of the the barrier of comfort. We live in an unbelievably comfortable culture and society. I mean, we live at, at unbelievable standards of comfort, and we are constantly fed a lie, a lie that everything should always be improving, that the comfort should be getting more comfortable, should be getting more comfortable, should be getting better, should be getting bigger, should be getting greater. I named this several weeks back, you know, it's the lie or the myth of upward mobility. That life should always be up and to the right. That the house should always be getting bigger. The job should always be getting better with a larger paycheck. The iPhone should always get better. Each stage should be something improved and great. The lie is that everything should always be up and to the right. But Jesus dispels that myth and that lie immediately when he says, follow me, because he says, hey, listen, I want you to see the trajectory of my life. It wasn't up and to the right. No, for me, the path was the path of downward mobility. He said, well, I actually let go of all comfort, all pleasure, everything in life for the sake of the world, that the world may know that there's a God who loves them. Philippians 2, Jesus was equal with God, and he let go of all of that so that everyone else could know the radical love of God. And he says, listen, the myth, the myth of upward mobility, it will shipwreck your faith if you don't understand that sometimes following Jesus will come at a great cost. You know, because the reality is you'll step into following Jesus and then that financial deal won't go through the way that you wanted it to. Or you won't get the bigger house. Or you'll have to foreclose on the house. Or you'll lose the job. You know, I've been in some seasons of financial strain and stress. Jesus never promised financial certainty, security, and stability. He said, now follow me, follow me. Because sometimes walking with Jesus, we have to embrace the path of downward mobility, of laying down our lives day after day to follow him. 
I think another major barrier that many of us face is that we think in terms of seasons in our life, and sometimes that's good because we do go through seasons, but if we're not careful because we get so focused on seasons and the season that we're in, we get overly focused on the season that's coming, and we kind of end up being like the second guy in the story, and we go, you know, it's going to be a lot, I'll be a lot more qualified, Jesus, to follow you when I'm in the next season of my life. And we can do this in almost any season, right? I think about when I was in college. I was like, well, you know, God, I'm just a college student right now. What could I really do? You know, when I graduate college and I get a job and I've got more financial resources and I'm a little more stable, then I'll really be able to follow you and everything. I'll be able to go where you go and say what you say and be what you want me to be when I get there. But it's not just like college, right? Sometimes there's this thing in our life that we call a season that may not even be a season. Yeah, and I say this very sensitively and, and I wanna be sensitive here, but you know, I think, I think about the, the, the role in the church of single people and married people. You know, I think sometimes the church has done an awful job at helping single people figure out what it looks like to walk with Jesus actively when they're not married. You know, and I think the, the church the church has been guilty of perpetuating some lies about singleness. There's this lie that, hey, all the problems you have, one day marriage will fix you, that marriage will fulfill your every desire and you'll find all your purpose when you find that one true godly spouse for your life. And you know, this, that's, that's not true. There's only, there's only one source that can satisfy every desire that you have, and that is Christ Jesus. And if you enter into any relationship, be it marriage or otherwise, and you expect that other person to be able to satisfy something deep within you, you're gonna overwhelm that person and you're gonna leave utterly disappointed because they can't do it. They can't. There's this lie that marriage will complete you. you know? There's also this lie that people who are married are for some reason more mature than people that are single. Not true. It's just not true. I have done a lot of marriage counseling and I've met a lot of really immature married people. And I have met some incredibly mature, sold out, godly, single people who love Jesus with all of their lives. And so if you're single and you're going, man, this is just a season and when I get to the other side, then I can give my life to Jesus. Man, that is a lie. There's this other lie that single people are selfish and they're just not willing to give what is required. Man, not true. You know, most of these lies can be completely dismantled when you just begin to look at the New Testament. You know, the two greatest contributors to the teachings of the New Testament were a man named Jesus, I think you've heard of him, and a guy named Paul, probably heard of him, both of whom were single both of whom took hold of what God had for them in the kingdom. Jesus laid down his life as the son of God. Paul gave all of himself entirely to, to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Both of them literally altered the course of history. And both of them were single, unmarried men. And so, you know, I, I just want to name, like if you're single it, and you're longing to be married, that is a good and holy longing, and that's good. But you've got to understand what it is. You know, marriage is not eternal. Jesus says that really clear in Matthew 22. He says, listen, in eternity, we, we, we won't be given in marriage. He says, and there's one thing, we're that, we're that person at the plow in the field, our eyes on Jesus. That is the row we're seeking to plow. You know, it's not just lies about singleness. There's lies about marriage as well, right? Uh, I, I can't tell you how many people I've met that, 
you know, when they're single, they're sold out for Jesus and then they get married and there's kind of this new thinking that slips in that says, well, I, you know, my, my, my ministry right now is to work on my marriage. We've got we to gotta get ourselves together. We've got to get ourselves built up before we can really give ourselves anything else. And that's our ministry right now. And I've seen so many newlyweds that get knocked off course because they begin to think that their marriage is the single focus of their lives. It is an important focus. But it is not the only focus. If you will both independently keep your eyes on Jesus... Keep your eyes on Jesus. That is the secret to working at your marriage is for both of you to keep your eyes on Jesus, you know? And so these things that sometimes we call seasons that aren't necessarily even seasons. We're like, man, once I get married or, you know, once, once our marriage gets established, but then it keeps going. And it's like, if you do get married and then you have kids, we're like, right now I gotta pour into our kids because the kids are the season that we're in. But then your kids graduate and they move out and you're like, oh, for the first time we're empty nesters. We gotta take a little bit of time for me time to rejuvenate. Or, and then you get past being empty nesters. Now we're retired. I've been working my whole life. Life, so it's time for me to just, so, so I can, I'll just take a little bit of time to focus on me. And it's always, there's another season that we think we can wait on. And Jesus says, no, follow me, follow me, follow me. It is this invitation in the now going all the way into the future that no matter what season you find yourself in, no matter what stage you find yourself in, no matter what status you find yourself in, that following Jesus can accompany all of that. And life can be breathed into every single moment by the grace of God. That is the invitation of Jesus, to follow him. Another barrier we see is just that competing focus, right? We're on, the, we're on the field. Sometimes it's not comfort. Sometimes it's not a season or a status. Sometimes it's just competing focus. You know, some of you have amazing careers, and you believe that was given to you by God. But if you're not careful, that career can become the focus and take your eyes off of Jesus. He says, even in the place where I've put you, I'm still asking you to fix your eyes on me and all that I have for you. For some of us, it's the calling on our life. I mean, I, I don't know how many of you feel called by God clearly into some sort of ministry or, or, or opportunity but I will go ahead and tell you up front because I've been down this road that you will feel a calling on your life and if you're not careful, your focus will become on that calling and on the work that you do in that calling and there is a major difference in being focused on the work that you provide and focusing on the one who has called you to the work. Very big difference. And so Jesus looks at us and he says, follow me, follow me, follow me. Walk with me, fix your eyes on me. This is the invitation of Jesus. And he knows there are barriers, he knows there are costs, and he lays them all out for all of us to see. And the choice is ours. Will we take up our cross? Will we follow him? Now, you know, it's one thing for me to get up here and say, hey, follow him, it's worth it, follow him, it's worth it. But, <clears throat> you know, a lot of us are gonna sit there and go, man, that's a lot of costs. Why? Why do I wanna do that? Why do I want to follow Jesus? You know, I just think we, I want to end with looking at some of the promises that Jesus holds out for us. In John 10, he says, hey, I've come that you may have life and life to the fullest. I've got a full life for you. You know, in Galatians 5, there's this promise that when we step into following Jesus, we get the fruit of peace and love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. All these things will well up from within us that despite the circumstances we find ourselves in, we can have those things existent in our lives. There's this promise of an inward peace and joy that cannot be taken away from you. 
There's a promise for eternal life that begins right, right now, not on the other side of death. Jesus says, listen, this is eternal life, that you know God and that you know the Son in John 17. He says, this is the promise, eternal life beginning right now. There's this promise that you'll be freed from spiritual and emotional oppression and imprisonment in Luke chapter four. There's this promise in Ephesians two that when you step into life with Jesus, that you become the display of God's grace and kindness in the world, that you become like a trophy to God's goodness and God's grace for the world to see. There is this promise in Acts chapter one that when we step into following Jesus, not only do we receive all of this, but he imbues our life with purpose and meaning and we get to be witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth of the greatness of our Lord and King, that your life takes on a holy and transcendent purpose filled with peace and joy and love and patience as you step into following Jesus. But it will come at what the world will call costs, but on the other side is met with eternal glory. This is the invitation of Jesus. And this morning, I want us to just end with you know, just one simple thing. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna go to communion here in a minute. And as you go to communion, I, I want you to, to kind of wrestle with this question and with Jesus and with the people sitting around you. You come to the body, you come to the blood of Jesus, And if you're here, it's either because you have chosen to follow Jesus, you're curious about following Jesus, or you're wondering if it's worth it. And as we come around the body and blood of Jesus at communion, this reminder that he gave it all, this calling was worth Jesus giving his life. It's this moment where we can pause and kind of ask him, Jesus, what are the barriers in my life? Jesus, what are the costs that I am very reluctant to take on. Jesus, where are the places where I, I want to follow you, but I'm being distracted and pulled one way or the other? Because if we truly want to be living into the identity that God gave us as the light of the world, it is going to require us fully fixing our eyes on Jesus and ready to take on any cost that comes our way. And so Jesus says, I'm encouraging you to count the cost. I'm encouraging you. So this morning, let's come to Jesus. Let's come to communion. Let's ask him, Jesus, what are the barriers? What are the costs? Will you show me what they are? And will you give me endurance, strength, and all that I need to be able to keep walking with you in the face of those costs? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I love you. And this teaching that you give is a hard teaching. It is hard, Jesus, to to hear the invitation to follow you and know that you give us a free gift of grace. I mean, you give us this gift. We, we don't earn it. We don't, have to, we don't have to live the life and pay the cost before we earn it, that you paid the cost for us. And yet you've said, even when I give you this gift, there's still gonna be barriers and costs to continually following me. And Lord, I stand up here and I just proclaim, and I think I speak the heart of our church family, that Jesus, we long to be the type of people who reflect your goodness to the city around us. And yet, out of Lord, I know that every single one of us are facing barriers and resistance to that. And so I pray this morning, would you illuminate some of those things for us? Would you show us, Lord, what are the costs? What are the barriers? Would you reveal the places that we're being stumbled up? Would you help us see why we feel that tension, that gap? And I pray that out of your goodness and your grace that you would pour out strength and endurance to be able to keep pressing into you and all that you have for us. Lord, we believe that you are here 
And as we take of the bread, as we take of the cup, we're not just remembering your death and resurrection, but we are communing and feasting with you. And so Jesus, this morning, as we commune and feast with you and with our brothers and sisters, will you speak to us clearly? It's in the great name of Jesus that I pray and give thanks. Amen.